Good morning to you all. Our text today is from the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 24. Please will you turn there now. Since today is the day, it's the day we finally finish our study of Ephesians. I did a quick count up to see exactly where we have been over the last six years. <laughs> yeah, we started on the 6th of February 2011. Now I can't be exactly sure because I've been a bit flaky about the way I've named files on my computer, but today probably makes a neatly rounded 60 sermons altogether. <laughs> and given that the average length is between three and a half and 4,000 words, you've heard about a quarter of a million words from me on the subject, and it would take nearly two days to listen to them all consecutively. But who would want to? <laughs> I have a suspicion that no one except me has heard them all. The only one I think might have done so is Beth, but she has been ill now and again. So shame on the rest of you. Given that this is the very last we hear from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we might be forgiven for thinking that the instruction might tail off a bit, that the shiny bits of armour and pointy sword was the climax, but that's not the case. It's not like a poem that T.S. Eliot wrote named The Hollow Men. It ends with a line that you might well be familiar with. It says, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Our friend Paul has not ended with a whimper. So let's see why. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." But that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. May the Lord bless us with the understanding of this word. Thank you, Lord, for giving it to us. If you look at the sentence construction here, you'll see that there's a tiny detail that's so easy to miss. It's a semicolon at the end of verse 17. 
And just in case you've ever wondered, lying awake at three in the morning, the purpose of a semicolon is to emphasise the connection between closely related ideas. And in this case, that's between our spiritual armour and prayer. As small as this punctuation mark is, it is our first clue to the vital, critical and essential nature of prayer in the life of every believer. The fact is, friends, that we may have the finest leather for our belt, the strongest steel for our breastplate, the grippiest shoes ever made, and the biggest and the most impenetrable shield. On our heads we might have a fantastically well-made helmet and the razor-sharp, well-tempered blade on our hand. On the face of it, the ultimate warrior. But even that fine specimen, in all their glory, will be absolutely useless in battle without prayer. And this is because it is the only connection between the cadet and the commander. Everything, all that we have heard and read over the past seven sermons relies on this single activity for its effectiveness. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now note the repetition of the word all in the text here. Praying always with all prayer, with all perseverance and for all. We can understand then that there are elements here of time, of type, of trial and totality. Do you like all those T's? took me a while to figure them all out. But who is responsible for this prayer? If it is so very, very important, who cracks the nod? to get the job done? Well, an answer, here's a little challenge for you. Go away and do a study on the passages in the New Testament where the gifts of the Holy Spirit are listed. The three main ones, I can tell you, are in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Now, go and see if you can find prayer amongst them. Will you? Well, I'll short-circuit that process because the answer is that you won't not amongst the gifts of the Spirit, or even if you extend the search to include the various offices of the Spirit as described in this book, Ephesians, in chapter 4. Now, I think that's pretty interesting because it's generally put about in many churches, and I've certainly heard it said, how some people are such mighty prayer warriors. And the implication is, therefore, that prayer is best left to those people because they are so good at it. And they are and so nobody else really needs to bother. But that is not the picture that's given to us when we go back to see if prayer is a unique gift from the Holy Spirit, is it? And this should make it plain to us that those prayer warriors' dedication and eloquence is not a particular gift bestowed upon a particular person for a specific place or time. No, prayer is not a gift of that type. It is a general responsibility expectation and obligation for every single believer. Not one of us is disqualified from its practice at all. And that is true for all of those T's that I just mentioned, that time, type, trial and totality. And not any single one of those alone. We cannot just pick and choose which one we will use and which one we will reject for our convenience. You see, each and every believer is called to pray at any time in any way, through any circumstance, and for all who might need it. 
everyone. Now this might seem alarming to you because you feel that you are somehow lacking in prayer skills when compared to those folk around you who do it so easily and for so long and use all those cool words. I really get that because I feel that way too. You know, you might think that because I I stand up here and pray that it isn't a problem for me. But you should know that for a very long time I had to sit down and prepare my sermon opening and closing prayers ahead of time. I had to write them down so that I wouldn't stand here like a, a dummy when the time came to open my mouth. With practice, I've, I've gotten better, but I had to do it to get better because doing nothing doesn't help a bit. And don't you just hate it when the, those good prayers steal the thing you're going to pray about just while you were screwing up the courage to open your mouth? If you were in this space, here's a welcome news flash. God doesn't keep a prayer scorecard. He doesn't just incline his ear to those who use a certain tone of voice or special Christian words or who meet the particular time standard of 47 seconds of continuous prayer. Sorry mate, you only managed 15 seconds today so your prayer is out. He doesn't say that. No. God hears and answers every single prayer that comes from the heart of his children. Every prayer. In every way. So there's no reason to not go to him. The only outcome of holding back because of some fear or another is that it weakens both ourselves and the body of the church. There is so much to gain and so little to lose. I just want to mention here that if you do find it easy to pray, that you make the effort to consciously create some space for your brothers and your sisters to join in, the ones who struggle. Stop pinching their prayers. So with some background points made, let's move on now to have a look at these alls. And we'll deal with that praying always first. Does that mean that I'm so busy mumbling prayers that there's no time for anything else? Hey Dave, can you come and fix my tap in the morning? No, I can't. I'm praying. Hey Dave, would you like to come to lunch today? No, I can't. I'm praying. Hey Dave, would you like to go fishing this afternoon? Sorry. I can't. I'm praying. The answer is no. The Lord is delighted for us to have a life aside from prayer. Not one that isn't inside prayer though. We ought to know that there is not one thing or time when it is not appropriate to speak to him. And that's exactly what we need because in the same way that God will never fail to listen, Satan will never fail to attack. He doesn't care that what we are doing or what time it is so long as it's not what God wants us to be doing. And he wants us to be weak and ineffectual. And this is more than just my opinion. The New King James Version translation I have here uses the phrase praying always. But many other translations replace this with praying at all times. And the Greek word that's used here for for times is kairos. And it gives us an important clue because it means just a point in time rather than being 
the whole of time. There's a different word for that. And it carries with us with it the sense of being a specific or, or a right time. In other words, the particular moment being described as the most suitable or the most right or the most convenient for a specific action. So we can understand there is a time of need and so we act. And this does not mean that we should only pray when it seems right or convenient to us. What it does mean is that whenever and however there is a need, and there are lots of those, we should and we can pray. If we are honest about this, there are absolutely endless opportunities to do so. The need might be great. We are in danger or the need may be very small. We need to find a parking place on a busy street. We might think of a friend who has some difficulty or another for no reason. Pray for them. We might be on our way home and, and see one of those magnificent rainbows in the sky. Praise him. We might be able to start a journey or a difficult task. Ask for his help. Each one of these moments is a kairos, a particular instant in time and each of them deserves a prayer of some sort allowed or internal desperate or delighted and this leads into our next all which is all prayer and supplication or petition as your Bible might have it unfortunately these days we have got the tendency to lump all of the different types of speaking to God under the one heading of just prayer But of course there are different types for important reasons. And so Paul is very deliberate about separating the two out. His purpose is to remind us that both types are needed. So what's the difference between prayer and petition? Well prayer means literally to to pray forward. It's the general word that's used for prayer in scripture and it's used only of prayer to God. It has the sense of being immediately before him and hence carries with it the idea of being there for the purposes of adoration, devotion and worship. Petition, on the other hand, means to want or to beg through prayer. When we petition God, our intention is to ask him for our own specific needs. And these might be just for us or they can be on behalf of others. But their answer is always aimed at people. So, We've got these two different kinds of prayer. How might we balance them in real life? Because for most of us, petition tends to overwhelm the praise, doesn't it? Perhaps you've heard of this little acrostic, ACTS. ACTS. And it goes like this. The A is for adoration, the C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. And it was originally suggested by the great Puritan theologian, Matthew Henry, in his book, A Method for Prayer, and it was written in the year 1710. It's been around for a while then. So why are they in this order? Well, I haven't read that book, but it seems to me this is a very fitting order for a structured prayer to our holy and righteous God. It sets God before man. To begin with, we adore him, we give him all glory and praise, which is perfectly correct because he alone deserves those things. 
and then we prepare ourselves for the rest of the prayer by confessing our sins to him. After all, is it right to ask Holy God for his favour when we have unconfessed sin in our hearts? And then we give him our thanks and truthfully, (laughs) there is so very much we can thank him for because his generosity is absolutely boundless. Although thanking him is something we often forget to do. And most of all, we can thank him for the gift of salvation through Jesus, which trumps all else. And finally, there is supplication, which is just a flash kind of word for petition. We bring our petitions to him, our needs and our hopes, the things that only he has the power to grant. Perhaps you might be thinking this is a direct contradiction of what I said a moment ago about there being no set formula for prayer. Well, let me tell you, it isn't. Do you have to pray this way? No. Will God refuse to listen to you or answer if you don't? No. Will praying this way guarantee you a Ferrari? No. Is this an appropriate prayer for all occasions? No. That's quite a lot of no's, isn't it? So why would we bother with acts? I believe it comes down to this. Surely the Lord deserves our best and most respectful efforts for the love that he has shown us. So, while those emergency arrow prayers or those other little shorties of thanksgiving or praise squeezed in during a busy day are just as acceptable to him, when we go to pray in a structured way, either individually or in our quiet times or corporately in the church, surely it makes sense to give him the very best that we can. So, perhaps the next time you have an opportunity, give this act a go and and see how it works for you. Before we move on to some more alls, we come to this very important matter of positioning right in the middle of verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. How? How do we do that? What is our attitude? In the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I don't believe there's any mistake that this phrase is in the middle of the verse because the Holy Spirit must always be in the very centre of our prayers and our lives. So, what does this mean? Does it mean that we always have to be in some kind of exalted, trance-like state to pray effectively? (laughs) I suppose it would be very nice to be in that state of communion with God on a permanent basis, but since all of us do have busy lives with some combination of work and family and sport and friends and so on, We'll just have to wait for that one until we get to heaven. So what does this slightly mysterious statement really mean? Well, the first thing I have to say about being in the Spirit is that it is impossible if you have not been saved. Only those people who have recognised that their sin is wrong and keeps them eternally separated from God have repented and that means that they've said they're sorry to God for those things and will try not to do them again. And then they have accepted Jesus as the Lord of their lives from then on. Only they will receive a restored relationship to God. Now Jesus made that reconciliation possible when no one else could by taking the punishment we should have had for our sins when he died on the cross. And that is why in return we need to give the rest of our lives to him in service and obedience. 
Now from a theological viewpoint, there's an awful lot of stuff that God does in that particular moment of saving, but one of the most and very important is that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us to help us to be the sort of people that God wants us to be. And that's why it's impossible to pray in the Spirit if you aren't a Christian, because the Spirit is not in you and never will be unless you turn to Jesus. If you are a Christian though, you have a choice at any one moment. Either you can listen to the still, small voice of the Spirit in your heart so as to be aligned with and thinking of the things of God, doing His work, or, of course, you can tune into that other seductive voice of your flesh that's honed to a very fine point by the interference of Satan. For sure, if you try to pray whilst you're in the grip of the flesh, it is not going to be in the Spirit because like oil and water, those two do not mix. I don't know about you, but I've always found phrases like these to be so frustrating because they're hard to understand. You know, often you're in a sermon and the pastor drops one of these little phrases on you and then doesn't explain it. And you're left with so many questions. So what do they, what do they mean? How do I actually do them or experience them? So let's try to turn this mysterious phrase, being in the spirit, into something we can use. But in our journey through this book of Ephesians, we've spoken a great deal about that word sanctification, about how after we are saved we begin to work with God throughout our lives to become more Christ-like. Let's try something. For the purposes of this exercise, let's substitute in the spirit for Christ-like. So that the sentence now reads that sanctification is about how we change through our lives to be more in the spirit. Perhaps that sounds like a circular argument because I'm still just using those words we don't really understand, in the spirit. So let's try one more substitution then. Galatians 5:22 and 23 tells us that the fruit of the spirit is, we know this, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So if I plug these into our test statement so that it says that sanctification is how we change through our lives to be more more loving, joyful, peaceful, long-suffering and so on, now we have something we can understand in practical terms and work with. Well, that's helpful, but we haven't finished yet because we need to bring that understanding back to our subject today. How? Well, I believe it's true that if the attributes of love, joy and peace and so on are the focus and aim of my prayer, then I am praying in the Spirit. We are walking together down the same road. Does that make some more sense to you? Friends, we cannot ever imagine that the journey of the believer, that as our own life journey, is possible at all without the indwelling and the work of the Holy Spirit. He can never be separated from anything we do and this is why he was given to us. Not as a whistleblower, but helper. If we want to be obedient to our Father, if we want to return the love that He has given to us, then we need to incline our ear and bend our will toward the Spirit's calling and purposes. And then we will start to live like true children of God. So far our study has been quite self-centered, which is not really that inappropriate because that's where the text naturally takes us. But that's not the end of it because... 
If we are serious about fulfilling the second great commandment to love our neighbour as ourselves, then we will know that we must also pray for them. That's one expression of that love. And the question is, how much? When we read in verse 18 that we should be watchful, it's helpful to know that the Greek word used here means literally to be without sleep. And that's a great picture. But we're not talking about the the bleary-eyed and unshaven 3am version here, but the -the over-the-hedge 15 cans of Red Bull variety. The armour is complete, and in the mind there is not one shred of dullness. Every sense is fully in use, tuned, and ready for whatever may come. And this makes a lot of sense, because we can never know when spiritual attacks will come or where they will take place, or from what direction. If, if we are ready and waiting then, we can meet them both for ourselves and for others. But if we have dropped our guard, then at least, at least there will be bruises. And in this regard, it's very interesting that the way we usually pray is with our head bowed and our eyes closed. But you know, that's not actually a, a pose that's suggested in, in Scripture. In fact, The Jews prayed with their eyes open towards heaven and their hands lifted towards God. What did Jesus say? Watch and pray was his repeated command to the disciples. Now, I'm not proposing a new kind of um, legalistic prayer posture here. Although I think in in dangerous times (laughs) it might be a really good idea. But what I am saying is that this text tells us that our internal attitude must be much more finely attuned to see what need for prayer there might be around us. Because I fear that many Christians move through the day in a kind of spiritual fog, eyes fixed only in whatever is immediately in front of them, whether it's the computer screen or the traffic in front or whatever task you do for a job. There is no need at all, there is no thought at all of the Lord for hours on end. And if that is the description of your life, well, wake up, my friend, because your coffee is cold. We must not forget, though, that although I started out by saying that this latter part of verse 18 is aimed not at us, but away from us, its call is for us to be alert and watchful. It's primarily for our fellow saints' um, sake, and moreover, not just now and again, but in a continual way. There's this word perseverance that's used here in many translations. Some others use persistence. And this tells us firstly that the work is important. It's not incidental, not something we just pick up along the way now and again. If it wasn't important, we wouldn't be asked to do it as much. And secondly, it infers that the work will not always be easy. But will that work be rewarding? To answer that, let me ask you a question. Now, another question. I've asked you lots today. If you were in some kind of difficulties, would you prefer A, to be the only one praying about it, B, having one other person praying with you, or C, knowing that there were a hundred people praying with you? Well, what would it be? C, yes. And I know that for myself. When I was ill a few years ago, it was 
so special for me to know that there were many others on their knees literally all over the world taking my problems to the Lord. What a privilege and a comfort. But I don't think we can expect it from others if we do not ourselves do it for others. Because if we don't do it, who will? Just imagine for a moment a church where everyone was united in praying for each other. What do you suppose belonging to such a body of believers would be like? Do you suppose that it would fulfill Jesus' command? In John 15, this is my commandment, that that you love one another as I have loved you. Could we then know that it's really true when we sing that song goes? And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Will that great crowd of onlookers know that we are Christians from what you and I are praying today? And this attitude is also so very consistent with the servant heart and example of Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone desires to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. If I, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A servant heart is not just expressed by physical acts. In fact, its truest life lies hidden within how we think and feel about those around us and consequently how we pray for them. Now, Obviously, I can't tell from the look of any one of you where you stand on this matter of alertly and perseveringly praying for your fellow saints, whether you are good or bad about it or even new about it today. But here it is in black and white in front of us. It calls everyone, it calls you, it calls me, every believer who opens their eyes this Sunday to watch and pray. Not just for themselves, but for each other. And what is certain is that if we're not good at that, and I'll certainly put my hand up for that, then we can make a difference this very day. So let's try it then. Let's see if we can be that church that prays for everyone And that includes, by extension, our missionaries. Can I challenge you, please, that when you go away today, just try to pray in this way for a month. Use that prayer list in the broadsheet. Use the church directory. Let's include all the saints, all of us. Let's see what happens. Will you try that with me? Well, we've been going for some time already and we still have five whole verses to go. So if Ephesians is to be done and dusted today, we need to get a move on. And judging by my progress so far, I feel that what I might achieve is a generally sleeping church rather than a generally praying one. So we must press on. Verse 19. Paul's request to the reader here is no more than he has already asked for as a general practice 
for the church. Pray for me too. But his motive for asking for that prayer reminds us of the reason that we need prayer. We're not reading here, pray for me that I might have heaps of shekels, a hot wife, a palace and a cool white horse. We read, pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Here's Paul, he's in chains, he's waiting to be judged by Caesar. And he's clearly as afraid as you'd expect him to be in such a situation. Now what's his request? Get me out of here! No! He's right on task. Pray for me so that I can talk to everyone here about the gospel. Help me to make it clear and understandable. Give me strength. Help me to get past my fears and anxieties. Why? Because this is the most important thing I can do. Not for me, but for him, for them. (coughs) Very complicated coughing here. Friends, preaching the gospel, however we may do that, is the very best thing we can do for our neighbour. And so it must be both the principal desire of our heart and the ultimate object of our petitionary prayers. But, please don't misunderstand me to be advocating a hair shirt and abstinence type of life. The Lord is very gracious. He blesses us daily and we would not have jobs and warm houses and nice clothes and full stomachs unless it was his will. And we can be very comfortable about that. But what do we do with that comfort? Do we think that the object of our own salvation is a pipe and slippers by the fire sort of life? Or is it something quite different as Paul has explained to us here today? Have we not learned that prayer's best and purest expression is not inward, but outward? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you? We already know the answer. We're not comfortable for comfort's sake. We are so in order that first the good news of the gospel will go out to all nations. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. There it is on the back wall. Your prayer can save a life eternally. Eternally, forever. And that really matters. Now, This photo was posted on Facebook very recently. It's quite remarkable, isn't it? To catch that very moment when that bird's beak just kisses the surface of the water. The reflection rising up to meet it. It's outstanding. It's incredible. It's exquisite. It's such an achievement, isn't it? The thing is that Apparently it took six years, at an average of 100 days a year and 720,000 photos to get that shot. The motivation? To honour a grandfather. I have a pastor friend in Auckland who sends me a daily devotional and at the bottom he always puts this challenging little quote. 
I think about it so many times a day. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but it's succeeding in things in life that don't really matter. Let's succeed at something that really does matter. Let's succeed at prayer. Not just the kind that comes at the end of the day, a moment slipped in before we go to sleep, but the kind that is at the centre of everything we do. Let me end then with this blessing. Peace to the brethren, to, to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great book, these six years, your grace throughout. Thank you for all the things that you have reminded us of. Lord, my prayer today is that through your Holy Spirit, you would work in our lives to bring those things to life for your glory and our good. We look forward to hearing the new things you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name, Amen.